Yeah. Alright. So Tails already seen this. <coughs> I've added three new sides. Um, and and if you remember from that first PowerPoint, this was a surprise because it focuses on moral theology and whether St. John Eudes is a moral theologian. He's in the moral theology section of the Catechism, but most Eudists, John Eudes included, would never call him a moral theologian. So this is something that we didn't get anything about in our special year, but uh, it's really fascinating because St. John Eudes was claimed as a moral theologian <laughs> by the authors of the Catechism and not by a Eudist. So we're going to kind of explore... Originally, this was like a whodunit kind of presentation, the mystery of how did he get in there and why. So the, the storyline we're going to follow, just to set the foundation, we're going to look at, at what are the fundamentals of morality at play right now, because that's important to, to where St. John Eudes fits into it. We'll look at him in the Catechism. We'll look at how he's been classified, whether he's been called more a theologian, who's called him what, aside from the Jansenists, we already know what they called him. <laughs> and, and then when I gave the presentation originally, between these two sections, it felt like I kind of got lost in the weeds and... and so we're going to pull out of the detail and look back at a, an overview of the history of moral theology from that orange book right there that makes it real clear where the French school fits into the whole scheme of things. And then we'll find who done it. Yeah, ready? Okay, so this was a presentation for our fundamental moral theology class. So moral theology is a huge, huge area, but we focused on the, the fundamentals. Why live a moral life? Why be good? And right now there are three <laughs> foundations upon which morality can be founded. One is based on the situation. Why is a thing moral? Because of the outcome, the consequences. Um, it has a lot to do with John Stuart Mill's utilitarian uh, philosophy. So it's all about the situation. What brings the, the greatest good for the greatest number of people, uh, which is also very close to the Jesuit approach in the 17th century of, of taking morality on a case-by-case -case basis. Consequentialism is another term for it, and that was officially condemned by John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor, because morality has a lot more that it has to do with a lot more than just the situation that you're in and the outcome, because you could use this to do the ends justify the means, right? So that's that one. Duty ethics is based on Kant. That's the fancy word for it deontology um, and uh, it would say things are moral because of the eternal law there are moral absolutes that everyone must follow the categorical imperative this is something that should be good or right in any and all cases right um, there's a lot of 
Catholic, there's a lot of harmony between the Catholic approach and Kant's approach. Um, but it's not absolute. So one of the kind of funky things from my <laughs> perspective is that Kant says the more resistance you have to making the right choices, the, the higher value your choice has. So someone who, <laughs> the Lord loves a happy giver, doesn't make sense to Kant. He says a grumpy philanthropist has, is the, the heroic virtue. The less you like doing what is right, the, the more heroic you are, the more moral. Um, so then the, the last approach is virtue ethics. John Paul II used this approach a lot it matched with his personalistic philosophy which focuses on our freedom and our dignity we were created with the ability the freedom to choose and to love and so the focus of virtue ethics is to build the character so that we freely choose what is most worthy of the dignity of human life um, and so in Veritati Splendor, he says the most important consideration in morality is the object freely chosen. Okay, so that was a heck of a lot of detail right at the beginning. But we... Okay, good, good. <laughs> this is freedom, the freedom of a person. This is the duty based on absolute law. And this is based on the circumstances and the outcome. Okay, deep breath. So, then we come to our, our Catechism of the Catholic Church. Part 3 of 4 is all about moral theology and it's called Life in Christ. And in the summary that gets, sets the tone for the entire section, that's these 7-8 paragraphs here, and it quotes scripture 26 times, uh, patristic writings once, and three saints, one of which is St. John Hughes. So it's, uh, Father Brennan, our systematics professor, said the summaries are the most important part of the catechism because it, it sets the tone for the whole thing. It, you read that, you know the direction the, the authors want us to go. So, paragraph 1698 begins with an introduction. Uh, it says, the first and last point of reference for this moral catechesis will always be Jesus Christ himself. It is by looking to him in faith that Christ's faithful can hope that he himself fulfills his promises in them, and that by loving him with the same love with which he has loved them, they may perform works in keeping with their dignity. So, we think back one side, this fits very much into the personalistic, the virtue ethics, the, the point of reference for all morality. Why are we good? Because Jesus loves us. He's made us promises and he wants to draw us to himself. So, we choose to be good because we love him back. And when we love him and do what he wants us to do, we we perform works in keeping with our dignity, right? So it's it's 
absolutely looking at the fundamentals, the whole question of why. And then comes St. John Eudes. I ask you to consider that in our Lord, that our Lord Jesus Christ is your true head, and that you are one of his members. He belongs to you as the head belongs to its members. That all that is his is yours, his spirit, his heart, his body and soul, and all his faculties. So if we translate that, we, we bring a bit in that, right? Jesus belongs to you absolutely. So then you must make use of all of these as of your own to serve, praise, love, and glorify God. You belong to him as members belong to their head. So Jesus belongs to you, and you belong to God. Jesus gives you all of his faculties so that you can praise, love, and glorify God. And so he longs for you. That's a beautiful word. To use all that is in you. There's that totalize, the, the totality of the French school right there. That is in you as if it were his own. For the service and glory of the Father. And we'll come back to this citation right here. So, what do we see? Exactly. Yes. And it's a long quote. Right? Um, and and when we look at it, we can see it's totally Christocentric, right? It's all about Jesus, and it's very scriptural, just like the rest of the summary was. And it's the the mystical body of Christ, which is a theme right out of Saint Paul. It's also something very mystical. It's not very legalistic, like you'd sometimes see in moral theology. So Jesus longs for us, and he works through us, and there's a sense of mutual belonging. And and it has this this focus on human freedom, because he belongs to us, we belong to him, but we still have the choice. Buenos dias. So he longs for us, but he doesn't force us into any type of of action. He longs for us, he loves us, and he wants us to act in a way that it is in accord with our dignity but we have that freedom right it doesn't say anything in there about uh, consequences or about about punishment or right but there's a problem with this with the quote because it, it attributes it to tra attract on the admirable heart of Jesus, which does not exist anywhere. Um, the quote exists, but it's from chapter 5 of the admirable heart. Now there's a book called uh, The Sacred Heart of Jesus, which was actually chapter 12 of the admirable heart, which we published separately, but it's not quoting that. <laughs> it's quoting chapter 5. Um, and you can you can read it you can but if someone was reading the catechism and wanted to say oh who is this St. John Eudes guy 
they'd be lost because that doesn't exist anywhere. And that error is actually duplicated in the literature of the hours because this quote is comes from a section that's on in the office for August nineteenth, Feast of Saint John Eutes. And uh, so it leaves us with the question, did the authors of the Catechism actually read his books, or did they just read the Liturgy of the Hours and say, oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> Let's put it in. Um, so that's kind of the, the whodunit. That's the question. We're, and we're going to come back to it. But first we're going to move over and, and see how St. John Newt has been classified. He signed all of his letters for most of his life, missionary priest. Uh, and that's what he did. That was his full-time job, you could say, for 45 years. Um, so he would never describe himself as a moral theologian. His written works don't fit into any single category, let alone moral theology, because the kingdom is half, uh, half prayer book and half a manual on Christian life. That's kind of systematic, catechetic theology, that's sacramental theology, that's more sacramental, there's Mariology. He's not easy to categorize, except as a missionary. Um, he's also called a member of the French school, so a school of spirituality, missionary reform movement. Uh, he's called a master of the spiritual life. That's one of the few kind of summarizing titles that's been given to him um, by a Jesuit in 1959, by Father Eugenio in, in his book on the Latin rules. So he's called a spiritual master, but not a moral theologian. And in fact, there's only one Eudist that we've heard of that would act that actually talks about John Eudes and moral theology, and his father Roman in France, and he's working on a doctorate in moral theology, and he wrote a paper on moral life as a continuation of the life in Jesus, where he says uh, Saint John Eudes wrote a book on confession, which is in, which is linked pretty intricately to moral theology which has a case-by-case -case manual of how to deal with with confession cases, which was common in his day. Um, but where you really find his moral theology is when he talks about the baptismal vocation in the kingdom. It has a totally different conception of Christian morality than what was common in his his day and age because it's centered on Christ and contains in germinal form the moral theology of Vatican II. Um, so basically he's saying he, he kind of anticipated what Vatican II was going to call for and this is going to make more sense when we look at the history, the timeline. There is a Christian brother that talks about St. John Eudes morality because he says that's that green book there John Eudes has a view of existence based on baptism and entirely centered in Christ 
So he has a, based on that, he creates a morality of union or alliance. The promises of God and the commitments made in baptism and the covenant of baptism are the basis for all Christian morality. So in his view, it's all about the Paschal mystery. Growing in virtue, asceticism, is a, a matter of going from death to new life, renouncing sin, world, and self, and being united to Jesus Christ. So, what does that mean? This is gonna, maybe we, this should have gone before those slides in terms of storytelling, but this kind of puts into relief the the importance of a baptismal approach to morality, uh, an approach from union. Because in the patri patristic period, there was no such thing as moral theology. Theology was theology. <laughs> we don't have all the 31 flavors that we have today. Um, and it was, Christianity was a way of living. The early name for the Christians were the followers of the way. Right? So it was all wrapped up in in all of the same information. Well, Jesus Christ shows a, showed us the way. Anytime you do theology, it has implications for how we live. Um, but very early on, confession and penance developed as a solution to people who had denied the faith in order to keep their lives and avoid martyrdom. But then they wanted to come back to the church, but the community didn't wasn't real happy in letting them back in. Um, and so they developed they would do they would do a public confession of having apostatized. And they would do sometimes a number of years of penance sitting outside the door of the church when everyone else was inside praying and asking them as they walked in to pray, can you pray for me that, that I can come back into unity with the church? Um, but Augustine kind of approached it from a different way. He, he looked at morality... I mean, you can kind of see some, some ties here, but for Augustine, morality was a way to loving union with God. Um, that sounds a lot like what St. John Eudes was saying, because St. John Eudes is pretty Augustinian. Um, and the idea of the penance was to help bring the apostates back into union with the Church and with God. Right? Um, that kind of got out of hand in the early medieval because the Celtic spirituality people always talk about oh it's the nice like nature and, and sunshine and meadows Celtic spirituality but in, in church history Father Luke showed us <laughs> their penitential manuals that's Libri Penitential and if you if the sacristan knocked over a chalice he had to stand in icy cold water during a storm for 18 hours or something like that. And they had this list of anytime you do something wrong, here's how you make up for it through this kind of suffering, through 30 lashes with a whip, through walking barefoot on rocks, through icy cold water. And, um, and so that kind of took this, this idea of penance and, and 
made it very concrete and very specific, and all you had to do was open the, the manual and say, okay, well, you, this person committed adultery with an unmarried woman, so that's this punishment. <laughs> um, but one of the cool things that they did is they developed private confession. Um, got it closer to what we know today. Uh, but it kind of got out of hand. <laughs> Especially because the monks would offer to do penance for other people. Well, if you help, if you help support our monastery and give us a way of living, we can take your penance on for you. And and so anyway. So then, in the high Middle Ages, the 13th century, Saint Thomas Aquinas kind of saves moral theology. The whole first half of Part Two of his Summa that book is about morality and how it fits with Aristotelian approach to virtue which is this is the best way to live based on God who made us he put the natural law in our hearts and so he really made it very just put it in this beautiful context of all of theology and and personalism and being human and so, <laughs> Dark Age, Golden Age. Then the Council of Trent kind of blew things up. Because they said, look, you know, if you're going to do confession, it's really important to distinguish between mortal and venial sins. And, you know, maybe it's trying to correct some of the Libri Penitentialis so that knocking over a chalice in the sacristy doesn't have the same punishment as <laughs> as killing him, exactly. Um, but they called for specific training in morality. The Council of Trent was the one that split moral theology into its own um, pursuit, its own science. Uh, and what became very important was distinguishing between mortal and venial sins. The Jesuits had a lot of universities and a lot of uh, seminaries. They were minor seminaries at the time, but they kind of became specialists of looking at each case and saying, well, is this a mortal sin or is this a venial sin? The downside is they became specialists in finding loopholes to say, well, did you, I mean... Were you trying to defend your family when you killed the guy? You know, well, I bet we could call that a, a venial sin. Um, so there is a, another dark period where the Jesuits were specialists in getting you off the hook by, by saying case by case. Um, and they would publish manuals on here's how to evaluate a case, and here's a loophole for this one, and here's a loophole for that one. Um, at the same time, the Jansenists were in full force, and they were all about moral rigorism. So everything was a mortal sin. So um, that Orange Book says the French school actually had a, a really good balance between the two in their spiritual teaching, but it was limited to a very small group, it says, and and it was the Jesuits and the Jansenists that kind of ruled moral theology during the 17th and 18th century. Except for the the doctor of the church, 
I think he's the moral doctor. St. Alphonsus Liguori. Beautiful stuff. Again, so Augustine's a high point. Augustine, Augustine Aquinas, and Alphonsus Liguori are the high points of moral theology. He tried to solve this problem because people would go to a Jesuit confessor and they would be told, oh no, you haven't committed a mortal sin your whole life. And they would go to a Jansenist confessor and they would say, oh, you're terrible. You need to do penance immediately and all the time. And if you've been receiving communion, this is, this is you need to repent for that too. And so the individual Christian was left with a, a problem. Well, which confessor is right? So Alphonsus Liguori actually solved that with the, the the concept of probabilism. We won't get into too much detail, but he says, okay, if you get conflicting reports from different confessors, go with the one that seems most sensible. Go with the one that that's most probably right. Because some people were saying, no, you have to go with the strictest one. And some people were saying, no, you have to go with the, the laxest one. He says, no, <laughs> go in the middle. Anyway, so that is where we were. The French school was a balance between all of these in its spirituality, but it wasn't a treatise on moral theology like Alphonse Sigori wrote. Uh, so now we come to Vatican II. And in Optatum Todius, on the formation of priests, they say, look, we really need to reform and perfect moral theology because it's gotten pretty far away from scripture. We need to draw more fully on scripture and it needs to be more positive. It needs to be about the exalted vocation of the faithful in Christ and their obligation to bring forth fruit in charity. Because when you got into the weeds of, well, what's mortal and what's venial and and how do you tell the difference? And you end up with a very legalistic manual flowchart. And Vatican II says, no, it should have scripture. It should be positive, be about our vocation in Christ and about bringing forth fruit. In other words, it has to be a genuine spiritual theology nourished by scripture. And that's from a, a commentary on Vatican II and the renewal of moral theology. So, this is a lot of what St. John Eudes offers in that quote in the Catechism. Christ, our vocation, it's positive, it's very scriptural. It's about love, and it's a very spiritual approach. So, in a commentary on the moral theology section of the Catechism and this reform of Vatican II that it's trying to make available to the people of God, um, the, the commentaries say, look, there has to be no separation between Christ and the moral life. Because it's not about our efforts to be good. Morality, being good, is a gift of God. It's a gift of imitating Christ his sentiments, his virtues, his life. Boy, does that sound familiar, right? So everyone that's, that's reading the new catechism and the reforms the Vatican II is calling for says, look, 
it needs to be about union with Christ. It needs to be about grace. It needs to be founded on scripture. And that should be at the fundamental. So now we get to the the who done it. Because when I was when we were doing this this class, uh Father Camilo came to visit uh the seminary and I told him, you know, I'm working on this paper. I found Saint John Eutes in the catechism, but I don't know how he got there. You know, no one no one calls him a moral theologian and Father Camilo says, Oh, I know who put him there. It was Cardinal Schoenborn. He told me that a few months ago. <laughs> I, I love when the Holy Spirit helps write papers. So, Cardinal Schoenborn was the primary editor in charge of the catechism. And he told Father Camilo that he personally made sure that St. John Hughes was included. And this passage is cited in those two books sitting on the table, one of which was a retreat he gave for John Paul II, the other is about uh, Christology and where it needs to go today. Uh, and they're pretty recent books. Cardinal Schoenborn's still alive. And he kind of summarizes how how to rebuild moral theology based on the Incarnation. Because Christians are members of the body of Christ, they can live in him everything that he lived. As Leo the Great says, in suffering we're crucified with Christ, we rise with him in his resurrection, we sit with him at the right hand of the Father. In the life of the Christian, everything that ever was in Jesus' life is repeated, weeping and rejoicing, being thirsty and hungry, the wedding feast, and plucking the ears of corn, Hosanna, and crucify him. For it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he says, St. John Eudes expressed that in unsurpassable style, and he gives the exact same quote that's in the Catechism, and this time he attributes it correctly. <laughs> so he's read the admirable heart. <laughs> and this is an absolutely French school conception of the Incarnation, which they got from the patristic from St. Irenaeus, but we continue the life of Christ. And he says this is radical because of the fracturing of theology that we see today. In the Council of Trent, moral theology was separated from dogmatic theology because we needed a, a classification of mortal sins. Um, in the early 20th century, exegesis, the study of scripture, was split into its own pursuit and he says the life of Christ was made the exclusive property of the exegetes so a moral theologian couldn't say Jesus lived this way and so we should live this way as well because the exegetes would have a fit and say well you don't know that's actually that's what the author of the gospel of Mark said about the way that Jesus lived but you know you, you gotta hold your horses there um and and so there was this fracture, and I didn't put the bullet on here, but in the f 1400s, spiritual theology was split into its own pursuit as well. So if we talk about Jesus wanting union with us, you have to talk to a specialist in moral theology, in spiritual theology. 
if you want to talk about what's right or wrong, you have to get someone who's almost a canon lawyer knowing how to divide mortal and venial sins if you want to talk about Jesus. Um, but Gaudium et Spes and the Catechism are trying to put the life of Jesus back into all theology, trying to bring it back together. And so Cardinal Schoenbord is really admires how the French school integrates it. Beru's teaching drew the spiritual consequences of contemplating the life of Jesus. Just as Christ in his humanity gave himself up wholly to his divine mission, so Christians must always remain open to the mysteries and the attitudes of Jesus, which are ever effective and ever present. Beruliism lived on with Jean-Jacques Collier and John Eudes, and it was John Eudes who urged by the virtue of baptism and the imitation of, of the thoughts, feelings, and aims of Jesus called us to live a moral life. So he calls French school, the French school a brave effort to put theology and spirituality back together again. So the fact that St. John Eudes was a Renaissance man, that he covered almost, you know, a lot of different topics and didn't fit neatly into our postmodern categories, is exactly what the Second Vatican Council calls for. Um, it's exactly what Cardinal Schoenborn, who edited the Catechism, says we need to bring the whole Church to, is this reintegration of everything around the life of Christ. And in fact, also as I was putting this together and procrastinating to, to not do it, <laughs> I was reading a, an address by Pope Francis to seminarians, and he talked about the ex exact same challenges, the fragmentation of theology and of formation and spiritual and, and intellectual formation have nothing to do with each other sometimes. And he says the four pillars of formation must interact from your very first day as novices. They must never follow a structured sequence where, okay, I'm going to go be spiritual now, and then I'm going to leave that behind, and I'm going to go be academic now. Um, because it's all about encounter with Jesus. You are becoming pastors in the image of Jesus, the good pastor. This is continuing the life of Christ as a pastor. To, your aim is to resemble him and act on behalf of him amidst his flock, letting his sheep graze. And then here comes the grace. It's not our work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is the same thing that St. John Eudes says. Let us allow Christ to work through us. Let us continue his life. Let's bring it all together. So there's a summary slide that the relevance of St. John Eudes is that he brings together spirituality, scripture, and morality in contemplation of the person of Christ. And there's the beautiful, <laughs> Jesus longs to be with us. He longs to be united with us, and it's through baptism that he makes everybody a part of his body so that we can be united with him, so that we can continue his life, so we can serve God just like he did, with his heart, his soul. And that's that's where our moral choices come from. They don't come from, well, if you don't, you're going to have to stand knee-deep in cold water during a storm. It doesn't come from... It, it comes from fear of being separated from him because he loves us so much.
and it's his life on earth recorded in scripture that's our model for the moral life that's what Cardinal Schoenborn says especially just like St. John Hughes so it's all oriented towards relationship and virtues and Mother Antonia has this beautiful question, beautiful quote she says at the end of the day we have to inventory not how much we know about Jesus but how much we behave like him we have to be the love of Jesus she says that's you to spirituality that we're behaving like Jesus because we're a part of him and and anything that has to do with morality is okay well are we acting like we're part of Jesus body or not that's the fundamental and then all of the the right or wrong the venial and mortal it falls into place after that that's just that was the summary what do you i mean what do you think <laughs>